Well, good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn, if you would, Nehemiah chapter number 9. Nehemiah chapter number 9. Last week, we were introduced to the subject of spiritual renewal. In chapter 8, we noted the first of three parts of spiritual renewal. First being a hunger for spiritual guidance, which we saw led to the preaching and hearing of the Word of God. Today's text reveals the second requirement for spiritual renewal is a renewed awareness of sin and a corresponding sorrow for it. And the third requirement of spiritual renewal is a resulting change of life, which we will deal with in the next chapter, chapter number 10. Tonight, we're going to look at five attitudes that can lead to spiritual renewal. First of all, repentance, a brokenness over sin. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. As the word of God was read and the meaning given in chapter 8, the people came under genuine conviction. The Bible says of itself in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Because it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, the people were commanded to be joyful and to be full of praise for what God had done in bringing Israel out of bondage in Egypt. The Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the most favorite of the children because it required you to camp out all week. They built little huts on top of their houses and they camped out. Children had a great deal of fun. This was a time in which they celebrated Uh, the time of wandering in the wilderness. Now the days of feasting are replaced by fasting. Godly conviction is never satisfied with less than wholehearted repentance. The people's reaction to the conviction of sin in their lives helps us to understand two general principles about spiritual renewal. First of all, there can be no genuine forward moral progress either for a nation or an individual until there is an acknowledgement of a sorrow for and a turning from sin. The second thing is that there is no true sense of what sin is or a knowledge of why it is sinful without a hearing of and response to the word of God. So the first attitude required in the pursuit of Spiritual renewal is acknowledgement and genuine repentance of sin. The second is reverence expressed in 
praise and worship. It says in verse 4, And the Levites stood on the stairs and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Verse 4 is the beginning of the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. It's interesting to note that three of the great national prayers of Israel are recorded in Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel chapter 9. One writer advises about prayer writing this, From time to time, when prayer has become a routine, a shopping list of intercessions, asking God to bless this and that, and a little in the way of adoration or confession. We need then to rethink our approach to prayer. If you're having difficulty in prayer, if you long to deepen the language of your prayer, then learn from Nehemiah 9 the value of spending more time on God and less time on self. Learn to start with God before addressing your own needs. Learn the lesson of adoration. Well, there could be no better way to begin our prayers than by praising the character of our awesome God. It's good for us to focus on the greatness of God. If we focus too much on what he gives or what we want, it makes us selfish. Sincere worship honors God without regard to our circumstances, to our feelings, to our desires but rather worships him simply because he deserves our worship. A great place to start praising God is to praise him as our creator. Begin with the life that he gave you. Have you ever stopped to wonder at the complexity of the human body? Think for a moment of all the involuntary processes over which you have no control but are necessary For you to continue to live. God is literally sustaining your life moment by moment. He is also sustaining this universe moment by moment. During the French Revolution, many people wanted to get rid of Christianity forever. On one clear night, an atheist boastfully proclaimed his beliefs to a poor peasant. He said, everything will be abolished. Churches, Bibles, the clergy, even the word God. We shall remove everything that speaks of religion. The peasant gave a quiet chuckle. The atheist wanted to know what the believer was laughing about. And the peasant then pointed to the stars and he replied, I was just wondering what you're going to do to get all of those bright lights out of the sky. We have constant reminders of the creation of God. So another attitude required in pursuit of spiritual renewal is a reverence for God who has created you and given you life. Third, 
is remembrance. Understanding our past and its relationship to our present. From verse 7 through verse 32, we have a review of Israel's history. It was, in effect, a reminder not to forget all that God had done for them. Centuries earlier, Moses had warned the people not to forget God. But that is exactly what they did. They forgot to thank him for the blessings, but they were quick to run to him when things were bad. God is treated the same way today. In over 30 years of ministry, I've witnessed countless times individuals who had little interest in God or in the church until they had a problem or someone they loved was in the hospital or had died. Then everyone at the church is expected to drop everything and help them. They treat God the same way. As soon as the crisis is over, however, they return to their old way of living. He challenges them to remember that they are the recipients of God's grace in verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words. You are righteous. He reminds them that Abram was just another pagan, idol-worshiping individual before God chose him and made him into Abraham. Likewise, the New Testament tells us that not one of us would have sought out God had not God first awakened within us the desire to do so. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No man can come unto me unless the Father hath drawn him. They are also to remember that God, God's hand of deliverance in verses 9 through 12. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew they acted proudly against him, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. They are reminded of God's hand of deliverance. He delivered them from the slavery of Egypt just as he has delivered you and I from the slavery of sin. The story is told of a young man who was being subjected to mockery because he had become a Christian. They said, do you believe in all those miracles of the New Testament? He replied, yes, I do. Do you believe that one about Jesus changing water into wine, they demanded. Yes, he said, I believe that. He said, how could he do that? 
The young man responded, I don't know how, but I believe it. Because at our house, he changed beer into furniture. When God changes the heart, all kinds of wonderful deliverances take place. He also reminded them to remember God's revelation. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And you gave them just ordinances and true laws good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. As God's people, they were not left to figure out what was right and wrong on their own. God taught them how to live righteously in the midst of great wickedness. He taught them how to be befriend the wicked and yet not be destroyed by their immorality. It's exactly the same situation that we live in today. God has given us his book, the Bible, that teaches us the rules of life and provides us with the inner strength to resist temptation that abounds all around us. In fact, our next series, when we finish the book of Nehemiah, my plan is to do a series on the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, God's laws from the Old Testament, God's law from the New Testament. They are also told to remember God's provision, verse number 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and you brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. They are called upon to remember how God had supplied for their needs. He gave them bread when they had nothing to eat, and he gave them water from a rock in the middle of the desert. He also asked them to remember God's mercy in verse 16 and 17. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandment. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. So verses 16 and 17 give a summary of how Israel had responded to all of God's blessings. As the Levites continued in prayer here, they described the ingratitude and the rebellion and the willful disobedience and disregard for the word of God. They refused to bow to his authority. He says that they hardened their necks. They refused to listen to his word. They did not heed. And they refused to obey his will. Even then, God did not cast off his people. He continued to deal with not on the basis of their unfaithfulness, but he continued to deal with them on the basis of his faithfulness. Unfortunately, the conquest of the promised land was never fully completed. 
The problem was invariably one of failure to trust God and to obey his commands. They also failed to learn from past mistakes. In verses 26 through 31, there's a description of a sad but steady pattern of sinful disobedience in the life of Israel. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemy who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rested, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments. But sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Sins of omission as well as commission were repeated time after time. In fact, there is a pattern of willful disobedience and arrogance. There was increasing sin and rebellion, which would be followed by God's disciplinary judgment. After a while... They would cry out, and there would be a temporary return to God, followed by more rebellion and sin and apostasy. The cycle was sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance, sin. Over and over and over, the Israelites fell into that cycle. But the Israelites found that every time the cycle was repeated, the price went up. The root of Israel's unfaithfulness can be found in the final verse of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, which says, And every man did what? Did what was right in his own eyes. The people refused to follow the objective standard of God's word and instead chose to follow the subjective standard of their own feelings and opinions. That explained the moral decline, the moral decay, and the political uncertainty of those times. It also explains the prevalence of these same conditions in our own society as every man still does what is right in his own eyes. It is the principle that is at the core of the moral relativism that we live with today. 
Another attitude then required in the pursuit of spiritual renewal is remembering where God has brought us from and all that God has done. Fourth, there was a reassurance of God's unchanging character. Verse 32 begins with the word now. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem small before you that have come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all of your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dwelt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you have testified against them. With the word now in verse 32, there's a marked change from just recounting the past history up to the present time. From this point on, we find a change in pronouns. They have been talking about they and them, but now we read about we and our. They begin to look at the application to their own present generation. The fifth and final thing is a request for God's mercy. In verse number 36, here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The Levites have acknowledged God's greatness and goodness. And now, on the basis of this grace, they ask him for a new beginning as a nation. The people clearly recognized the connection between the evil in their hearts and lives and the terrible conditions in which they are now living in slavery and bondage. They could not change the circumstances they were in, but they could surrender to God and ask for his mercy. The same condition of servitude exists in our day. Despite the fact that we live in a high-tech society and we boast about our freedom from moral restraints, we are really slaves today in America. In the land of the free, home of the brave, we are slaves because what we have perceived as freedom is a prison. We are in slavery to sin. This entire ninth chapter of Nehemiah speaks of God's grace, his goodness, and his all-encompassing mercy. God has continually demonstrated his greatness and his goodness 
And what do the people do? They persist in doing things their own way. In, in short, they continued to sin repeatedly. At any point, God would have been justified to have said, that's it. You've messed up too much. You're on your own. And while he did send them corrective judgment in their lives, he never stopped loving them. Max Licato tells a story about a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world. She was discontent with the home in which she lived. She only had a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of having a better life in the city. So one morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the street would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed her things to go find her. On the way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth and closed the curtain and spent all that she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she she boarded the next bus to the city. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human being will do things that they thought was unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search in bars, hotels, and nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture, perhaps taped on a bathroom mirror, tucked to a hotel bulletin board, or fastened to a corner phone booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It was not too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was now tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade the countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little little village was in too many ways too far away. As she reached the bottom of her stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. God still issues that invitation to us today. Spiritual renewal is within our grasp. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for loving us continually not based on our 
unfaithfulness, but based on your continued and unbroken faithfulness. Sometimes we forget what you have done for us. We fail to remember the cost that you paid for our redemption. We fail to remember that we can always come home. And so, Lord, I pray that you touch our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.